Well, good morning, everyone. Just checking you can hear me at the back. Got a bit of a croaky voice. Thank you for the thumbs up. Appreciate that. So, as um, has been mentioned, oh, that was a bit loud then. Um, as has been mentioned already, we're continuing our series, One Thing, today working through the book of uh, Philippians. And we're going to read today's passage in a moment. And if you're up for it, it would be great if you could join in with me in reading it. And the reason um, I'm going to ask you to do that is that Philippians 2, 6 to 11 takes the form of a creed or a hymn that was quite possibly read or sung congregationally in the New Testament church. Now, we don't know whether Paul wrote it himself or simply included it in his letter. It doesn't really matter either way. It's in our New Testament by way of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Um, and the version that we're going to read takes the form of six verses of three lines each, just so you know what's coming. And uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the first line of each verse, and then together I'd like all of us to read the next two, and then repeat uh, for the remaining five verses. So you up for that? Good, because if you weren't, I'd be very disappointed. So just before the hymn itself, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Being in the, in the form of God, he considered it not a thing to be seized, to be equal with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave coming in human likeness. And appearing on earth as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, indeed, death on a cross. Wherefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It is an amazing passage of Scripture, and uh, also, I think, quite a hard one. Quite frequently, after I've preached on a Sunday, someone will come up to me after the service and say, Roger, that was a hard passage, wasn't it? And usually, I think I know what they mean, and I nod in, a, in agreement, although actually it could mean a number of things. You know, sometimes passages are hard to understand, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. What does that mean? If you don't know the answer, speak to Bruno after the service. He's the senior, the senior member on the ministry staff. He will know the answer. So You're welcome. So some, some passages are hard to understand and others are hard to interpret for our own times. So... Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Well, it's pretty clear what it meant then. But what does that mean now? What's the relevance of that verse for us today? Then some passages are hard to accept. So after hearing Jesus talk about marriage and divorce, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's best not to marry. And some passages are hard to apply. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
I don't have any difficulty accepting that this is a good thing to do, but actually doing it is another matter. So when someone says to me, Roger, that was a hard passage, wasn't it? I think they are usually meaning one of those four things. Now, there is another possibility. So I wonder if you've ever had the experience at uh, school or college or even at work, maybe, when um, you've, you've done something and then your teacher or your manager comes to you in a very kind of caring way and says, that was a hard assignment, wasn't it? Now, what they're really saying is you've made a complete dog's dinner of that piece of work. Um, but they're too kind to put it like that. So they say, that was a hard assignment, wasn't it? So I just wanted to say that um, if you've ever said to me at the end of a service, Roger, that was a hard passage to understand, or if you say to me this morning, that was a hard passage, um, thank you for being so gracious in your criticism. But today's passage is a hard passage for me for another reason, and that's because it's so important. And therefore, for many of us, so familiar, and also for many of us, so loved. So I feel the weight of making it clear in the first instance, and I feel the challenge of making it fresh. You know, all scripture is God-breathed, as Paul writes to Timothy, but in these verses before us today, as one commentator puts it, we tread on very holy ground indeed. So let's pray, shall we? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come with reverence to your word. Please give us minds to grasp it, hearts to receive it in a fresh way, and wills to apply it. Amen. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Paul writes three statements, each one on its own astonishing, but which together form a glorious picture of Christ's selfless incarnation. So firstly, Christ was in very nature God. This was the incredible claim that accompanied the angel's announcement to Jesus, of Jesus' birth to Joseph. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was the incredible claim that John made in the introduction to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is why the Jews wanted him dead. As John writes, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Christ was in very nature God. In and of itself, a remarkable statement. But it's just the first element of Christ's selfless incarnation because Paul goes on Christ did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't believe it was right to exploit his divine nature for his benefit. Now, I don't know if you're following the rugby at all at the moment. 
Um, I remember talking, talking to someone after church one Sunday in the late 90s. And um, we were talking about this, this chap here, this New Zealand rugby player uh, called Jonah Lomu. He was six foot five inches tall, he was 18 stone, and he was fast. And he was nicknamed the freight train in ballet shoes. And after one international match in which he completely terrorised England, um, my friend said to me, that's not rugby. And what he meant was, that's not fair. Nobody should be that fast and that tall and that heavy. It's just not fair. But of course, all Jonah Lomi was doing was exploiting his nature, his height, his weight, his speed, to his advantage and to the advantage of the New Zealand All Blacks. And this is the very thing Christ chose not to do. He chose not to exploit his nature to his advantage. This is the second element of his selfless incarnation. And instead of exploiting that divine nature, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So instead of using those advantages that were rightfully his by virtue of his divine nature, he voluntarily chose to put those advantages to one side and to enter our world on the same footing as we entered it. So we entered this world with nothing. He entered this world with nothing. We entered this world as a vulnerable fetus. He did the same. We grew up in a body subject to colds and viruses and sore throats with raging hormones and limitations, and so did he. So what an incredible selfless act the incarnation was. And Paul says right at the beginning of our passage, you should have the same mindset as Jesus, as Christ. But it didn't stop as a selfless incarnation because what followed was a purposeful death. <clears throat> and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' humility went beyond the incarnation itself. It went from there to an obedient life and culminated in his cruel death by crucifixion. Now, what does obedient to death actually mean? Well, it means Jesus was obedient right up until the moment that he breathed his last. And that means his death was purposeful. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't an, an unfortunate twist in the story. Jesus was following his father's purpose for his life right up until the very end. And Jesus knew how it was going to end because the end had meaning. So 700 years before all of this happened, Isaiah had prophesied this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter 
And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. So from our perspective, Jesus' death appears to be a tragic miscarriage of justice. And it was. It was a tragic miscarriage of justice. But from a heavenly perspective, it was purposeful. It was for the transgression of God's people. John Stott has written, On the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. As the angel of the Lord said to Joseph and Mary, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus submits himself firstly to a selfless incarnation, secondly to a purposeful death, and for that reason, God raised him to glory. Chapter 2, verse 7. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So in view of everything from verse 6 onwards, Jesus' selfless incarnation, his life of obedience, his shameful death, God glorified his son in view of all those things. And Paul is writing about more than just the resurrection here which was in itself glorious, but also Jesus' later ascension into heaven. So we read in Acts chapter 1 that after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on the last occasion, Jesus told them to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And after he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then into Ephesians chapter 1. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every nature that is invoked. Not only in the present age but also in the one to come. So in our passage in Philippians, Paul writes, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And as we know, when there's a therefore, we ask what it's there for. By exalting Christ to the highest place, God was stating an emphatic yes over everything that his son had done. So we look back on what we just read, what we just thought about. Because Jesus was willing to undertake a selfless incarnation, because Jesus was willing to lead an obedient life uh, and die a purposeful death. Therefore, God was pleased to give Jesus the most glorious place at his right hand. Now, we don't see that yet, obviously. 
But one day we will, because one day, a day of global recognition is coming. And this is covered in the last two verses of our passage today. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we live in a day when some bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and most don't. And the reasons for that are numerous. The reasons why some don't, some are intellectual, some are moral. But a day is coming when there will be no choice but to accept it. Now, I wonder if you've heard the story of the, the beggar king. There are all sorts of variations to it. But this one goes like this. Once upon a time... A rich and powerful king determined that he wanted to know what it was like to live as others lived, without the privileges and the powers that came with the kingdom. So he dressed up as a beggar and he set out from his palace. The only thing he determined was that although his appearance was intended to deceive, in all other respects he would be honest and truthful. Now he was pleased to be treated without the, the fawning pretense that he often suffered in his courts. But when he was asked about himself and explained that he was the king in disguise, he was often met with mockery or contempt. A couple of palace guards, also in disguise, ensured he didn't come to any physical harm, but he was frequently abused verbally and treated harshly or rudely ignored. But there came a day when he returned to his palace and he opened the gates to all for a feast and he sat at the entrance and welcomed each person as they came in through the gates. And some were shocked and frightened when they saw him because they recognised him. And they remembered how they had treated him. And with fear and trembling, they threw themselves down at his feet and begged for mercy. A day is coming when every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have a selfless incarnation, a purposeful death, a vindicated ascension, a global recognition. It's an incredible trajectory of a story. But where does it all start? It all starts here with Christ's selfless incarnation. And where does our passage start? So having gone from verses 6 through to 11, we now jump back to verse 5, where we read these words, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is where the passage goes from being hard in some senses, hard to understand, possibly hard to grasp, perhaps hard to see in a fresh way, maybe, to being hard in another sense, hard to apply because it's not in my nature to put to one side my rights and privileges and strengths 
it doesn't come naturally to me to serve rather than be served. My fallen nature rebels against humility. It abhors the idea of suffering for others, like Jesus suffered for me. My fallen nature even questions whether these things are good at all. Tom Wright writes, we hear so much of humility within early Christian writing, it's easy, easy to forget that until this strange movement of Jesus and his followers, nobody outside a narrow strand within the Jewish tradition had regarded it as a virtue. Humility? Who'd want to practice humility? Maybe that's how we feel. But that attitude that Jesus had says Paul, that attitude expressed in the selfless incarnation and obedience to death is the attitude that we should have too. Andrew Murray, not the tennis player, I hasten to add, the author of arguably the textbook on humility, wrote, without humility there can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of his favour and the power of his spirit. Without this, no abiding faith, or love, or joy, or strength. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. Now I ask myself, how is it possible to have that same attitude that Jesus had? when it's so contrary to my human nature? How is it possible to think about others in the same way that Jesus thought? And it encourages me to see that Paul has left a trail of breadcrumbs, clues for us to follow about how this is possible, particularly from chapter one. So here are some of them. We are God's holy people in Christ Jesus. So we share in Christ's life. We're not doing this on our own. God's actually at work in us. God is at work in us. We're recipients of God's grace, so it's not depending on all my efforts and attempts. God in his mercy is doing this, maybe in spite of who I am. The righteousness that we have is not something that we build up on our own. This is Christ's righteousness. And we're helped in all of this by each other's prayers and by the Spirit of Jesus. So we're not, we're not alone. Others are helping us run this race. And the Spirit of Jesus is working in us to help us finish this race, win this race. So if we are feeling daunted by the thought of bridging the gap between Christ's example of humility and selflessness and our own pride and self-centeredness, and frankly we should be, we should be feeling daunted at the thought of that gap, then help is at hand. Help is at hand. Now Paul will go on to say more about that help in the passages that follow and we'll cover those in future weeks. But the point I want to stress today is that this isn't something that we can do or need to do on our own. 
with God's help, it is within our reach to become more humble and selfless. So I'm going to close with some words of Andrew Murray again, who writes this. The command is clear, humble yourself. That doesn't mean it's your work to conquer and cast out the pride of your nature and to form within yourself the lowliness of the Holy Jesus. No, this is God's work. The very essence of that exaltation where he lifts you up into the real likeness of the beloved son. What the command does mean is this. Take every opportunity of humbling yourself before God and man. Amen.